Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We're going to try something a little different this week on the show. I have always been an admirer of the old Siskel and Ebert shows. I watched them when I was a kid and I thought, I want to be like that. I want to do that when I'm a grown up. And now I'm a grown up and now I have the opportunity to do that. I am a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic. And so is Stephen Garrett, who is our chief film critic. And this week, Stephen and I are going to, in the style of the old Siskel and Ebert at the movies, going to discuss four films and there will be little trailers for each film, and then we're going to talk about the films, and then we will not we won't give a thumbs up or a thumbs down because that is trademarked still, even though Siskel and Ebert are now dead, and we'll go about things uh, like they used to in the old days of film criticism. We ran a uh, a review on Book and Film Globe for a book called Opposable Thumbs, just kind of like a biography of Siskel and Ebert and the world they made, and the world they made is this world, and we're going to pay tribute to them this week with reviews of four new films, Priscilla, The Killer, Anatomy of a Fall, and Fair Play, all of which are varying degrees of good and bad, and Stephen and I will be right back after this musical interlude to talk about them. Here we are at last. It's Neil and Steven at the movies, as we've always wanted to do. Hello, Stephen Garrett. Finally. Finally. Finally, they get a taste of what we have been living for a few years, I think, with our witty banter and repartee. Yeah, and that's all they're going to get. That's all the audience is going to get is you and me talking about <laughs> movies. We have uh, four movies this week, and let, let's get right into it. Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley? You got women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter? Well, sir, I happen to be very fond of your daughter. I want a life of my own. Our first film is Priscilla, which is a, uh, you know, Priscilla Presley biopic for lack of a better term, directed by Sofia Coppola. Uh, I saw it um, this weekend at the Alamo Drafthouse in Austin. And Stephen wrote a terrific piece for us comparing Priscilla to uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which came out last year. And I think it's, a, I think it's a, an apt comparison because you take the two together, you get a, a pretty good revisionist sense of what, uh, what life was like at Graceland in the 60s and 70s. Bumpy, to say the least. Very bumpy. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I really, I really liked Priscilla. Uh, it was a little boring uh, in, in places. It's, it's, it's a little low key. I don't want to say it's ever low energy, but that's the funniest thing about Baz Luhrmann's is so hyped up and caffeinated, and is like a huge line of cocaine. And this is like a very mellow Valium of a movie. Yeah, it's like a sleep. It's like the sleeping pill that uh, Elvis gives sixteen-year-old <laughs> Priscilla when she, when she visits uh, him at Graceland for the first time. But I mean, here's the thing. I liked, I liked this. You know, it, it, it wasn't. Didn't, it wasn't real flashy. You know, it was very straightforward, um, but very lovely to look at, uh, like the two leads. And I thought the two leads were very good, especially Jacob Elordi as Elvis. I mean, I know it was a, a movie about Priscilla, but boy, he was he was just fantastic. What, what a performance. He's it, really good. And, you know, he um, he he gives 
shades to Elvis to make him feel more relatable, more human, more believable, a little juvenile, a little childlike, a little just naive in his cockiness, and then just the, the menace, the slight menace that comes through, which frankly, I felt was informed, you know, after seeing the Baz Luhrmann, when you get a sense of the pressure he's under, which I wish Priscilla had uh, maybe hinted at a bit more, but I, I just feel like that's missing. And yet, almost like, what is it? I'm trying to think of some of those great movies where you only see the story from one character's point of view and you never really understand why other characters are acting the way they are. And I think this is very much like that. Well, yeah. And, you know, I, I kept uh, leaning over to my wife. I saw it with my wife and I said, this is a crazy story. And it is, you know, like Elvis, Elvis is in the army in Germany and he meets a 14 year old girl <laughs> and pretty quickly uh, decides that she's going to be his wife. Like Priscilla was the only woman Elvis was ever married to. Um, and he kind of uh, keeps her and controls her and manipulates her. And it's very strange. The whole thing is just very strange. Did you make your wife uh, dye her hair black and wear mascara? I told her not to wear prints and that brown didn't look good on her. Because <laughs> <laughs> it reminded you about the, being in the army. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I made her dress up like a French maid and we, we took we took uh, analog photos <laughs> of each other. We just we just lay in bed. People brought us meals all day and all night. Yeah. So but, you know, the thing is, like, you know, that's as my wife said, you know, Elvis was the most famous man in the world. So, you know, this is a very um, bizarre situation to be his one and only, especially when she wasn't. I mean, he was off screwing Ann Margaret and Nancy Sinatra and and God God yeah, knows who yeah. else uh, Snoopy I think one of the, his girls did. Snoopy in one of the uh, letters wrote yeah it wasn't the dog Snoopy yeah it wasn't well yeah. who knows don't you think it was one of the more fascinating things about that movie was the fact that he kind of didn't want to have sex with this underage girl and that even after they were married and she was legal age he kind of was not that's not why he married her and, and I I feel like she really is this sort of she just represents innocence or uh, uh, like a simpler past or maybe the family he used to have and doesn't have and will never have really. Uh, I don't know. She She's really just a symbol of the things. Yeah. Basically, he, he moves her into his mother's house and then keeps her there and doesn't let her leave. Very strange. Uh, and, and, you know, the movie gets that across. And I thought that Sofia Coppola did a lovely job with with this film. And it was, you know, it is and, and it is actually proving to be quite popular and sort of a counter programming to big budget films. And I can see why. I mean, it, it, it's it's relatable uh, in, in, in a strange way. And it's also just an interesting story. And it has we haven't seen the Elvis story told from this perspective before. The, the one thing I'm going to say, Stephen, before we switch off to the next movie is, you know, I couldn't think of young Priscilla Presley without thinking of Naked Gun Priscilla. Presley. And, and I felt like that final scene where she, spoiler alert, they get divorced and she leaves Graceland where she's driving off by herself. I, I, I that would have been so much funnier if the naked gun theme had been playing behind it. She's driving. She's driving. It would have been, it would have been perfect. Well, I think uh, we can't steal Siskel and Ebert's uh, format per se, but I think both Stephen and I would. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Can I, can I inject one quick comment? Yes, too? yes, yes. I think what's great about uh, Sophia making a movie like this, if I call her Sophia, I don't know her, Sophia Coppola making a movie like this is, this is very much in her wheelhouse and very much uh, in as part of her continuum of the study of celebrity and people injected into celebrity and having to deal with it, yes. you know, Agreed. whether they're the daughter of somebody famous or the wife of somebody famous or, or what have you. And I have to say, it's, it's fascinating that she's kind of found endlessly interesting aspects to that 
paradigm. You know what I mean? And very few other people have access to it in a way that doesn't make it feel too glitzy. Like she's clearly not impressed by celebrity, but she's fascinated by people who are uh, the object of adoration by other people, right? Very true. And she is a terrific director, and this is a nice addition to her filmography. I mean, it, it, it just kind of reminds you like, oh, yeah. She really, she knows what she's doing. She does. She makes good, she makes good, unpretentious, interesting movies, and Priscilla is one of them. Stick to your plan. Trust no one. Stick to the plan. Forbid empathy. Stick to the plan. Empathy, weakness, vulnerability. This is what it takes if you want to succeed. Simple. Which brings us to our second film, which is neither uh, unpretentious nor interesting, and that is The Killer, uh. <laughs> directed by David Fincher. It's a hitman movie, basically, uh, starring Michael Fassbender uh, as a guy, as sort of an international man of mystery who has a job go wrong, and then, uh, then a revenge plot, basically, uh, ensues. And... You know, this is a David Fincher film. So, again, this is not a uh, a technically clumsy movie. Uh, it has a terrific score uh, from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Uh, there are some really cool visuals and, you know, it builds tension nicely. But I still kind of hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's weirdly dull, isn't it? I mean, it is so yeah. accomplished. It is so polished. It is a beautiful to look at and clearly a lot of love and attention and professional you know, skill and talent is on the screen. And yet I just couldn't wait to leave. It couldn't have ended soon enough. You know, the details are good. I mean, the way he's sort of, he's very meticulous about his, about his work, Fossbender's killer. Uh, and he, he kind of accumulates these puzzle pieces together. And I guess all of that is okay. And again, Fincher does, you know, it does a great job just showing the little details and making very clear what's going on. But my real problem with the killer was the writing. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was just like this, what did I call it? A, a script boner. Ah. You know, this macho nonsense that the, this this uh, this guy, you know, Fassbender's voiceover just is constantly intoning. I feel like the movie, if, if it would have been almost a silent movie in some ways without the, the voiceover, because there wasn't, a, there weren't a lot of conversations. But I think the movie would have been a lot better. I'd like to see it without the narration. You don't need it. Yeah. It doesn't explain anything. It's just it's just kind of masturbation, excuse my French, masturbation on the on the page. It's <laughs> terrible. He's just drooling all this this uh, unnecessary bile. I mean, it's he's such a chatty Cathy and it it's almost like venom in a weird way. You yeah. know, it's like stop talking in my head. We get it. You're professional and you're slipping. And then he kind of rallies from it, you know, and you can figure out what's going on just by, because the, again, the movie's very well crafted. So you can figure out what is going on in the killer just by watching it. You don't need this script blathering at you. You really don't. And I, I, you know, it's kind of one of those, you know, cause it's close to two hours. I mean, I, I really wonder if there's a very tight, cool little movie with so much less exposition that maybe is like 95 or a hundred minutes doesn't have the Smiths in every other scene, you know, but maybe has something a little bit funnier and a little more witty than just using a Smith song again and again. Yeah. It was a little, it was pretentious that way. But again, I feel like, I don't feel, I don't feel like the length. I mean, I was like, wait a second. Now we have after New York, we have to go to Chicago too. 
I'm like, oh, uh, one more city. Oh, and all the chapter headings, all the dumb chapter oh, headings. Yeah. You're just like, come on, who cares? We'll figure it out. But that's a screenplay thing, you know? Mm. It's just bad screenwriting. It's like this, and, you know, and it, imagine this in the hands of a lesser director than David Fincher. You know, it would have been completely unwatchable. You know, it was sort of like a, it was like, it was like a leftover script from like a, like a usual suspects knockoff or something. But like, why, why, he's a smart guy. Why is he, why is he boofing these things? You know, like Mank, I get Mank, it was his dad's script. So maybe he just was a little too rose tinted about the whole thing. and didn't see its flaws or didn't realize how to make an interesting, compelling movie out of it. With the killer, it's just, Talk about a gun for hire, am I right? I mean, it just seems so strange. Why would he make this? Andrew Kevin Walker is, you know, like, right? Wasn't he the screenwriter? I, I don't know who Andrew, I don't know who Andrew Kevin Walker is. I can imagine who he is. Wasn't he the, the guy who wrote uh, uh, Seven? And then he wrote this? Oh, yeah? Okay. And this is their, like, their big reunion after that mega hit. All right. I guess that makes sense. Um, but, you know, Seven didn't have the voiceover. It's just this... This just feels, and it's also like, what are we doing here? You know, what 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 reality does this exist in? It's like this. It's sort of like um, like hipster indie John Wick garbage. <laughs> you know, this secret society of assassins, and you know, who are like fighting each other. I will say this: the fight scene, the fight scene in the Florida house was pretty pretty good. No, I mean, there's great, they're great set pieces, absolutely great set pieces and very slick stuff. And there's some really kind of grim humor that's wonderful. But I mean, and the John Wick is that conclusion of like, okay, if there are assassins who get go after other assassins, what does that look like? Here, it just seems like, wait, I don't understand. One of your assassins made a mistake. And so the guy who's this shady lawyer in, in Louisiana is in control of just maybe four or five assassins at best. And he sends the other assassins to like kind of berate the other guy or, or threaten him. And so Michael Fassbender just decides to tear it all down. Like I, I just, this must've happened at some point before they must have some sort of like company policy about flubs and blunders instead of this. It was very messy and weird and out of nowhere. I don't think it's based on a true story. And also <laughs> before we, uh, I hope b- before we move on, to uh, film number three, I, I wanted to say I also, you know, I am someone who loves 1970s television more more than anything, <laughs> pretty much. Like that is that is imprinted on my DNA. And I was I was personally offended that Fassbender's character used pseudonyms like George Jefferson, right. and Howard Cunningham, and uh, I, I can't even think about it. I mean, Archibald he, Bunker, Archibald Bunker. He didn't use Charles Ingalls, which would have been one of my choices. You know? <laughs> That's pretty good. Not Kunta Kinte. You wouldn't have been Kunta Kinte. Uh, J.R. Okay, Mr. Ewing. Um, you know, okay, they, Mr. He, Fonzarelli. You could have been yeah, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli. Mr. Fonzarelli. Mr. Oh, okay, Mr. Jack Tripper, your room is ready. You know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, no one is going to be like, wasn't Howard Cunningham the dad from Happy Days? You know, at some point, <laughs> someone's going to be like, Stubing? Captain Stubing, really? Anyway, <laughs> that was real stupid. And, and But that, again, that's just bad screenwriting tricks uh, 101, and uh, this movie is full of them. So, you know, it's stylish. Some people like it, and some people will like it. I, I just, I can't get behind the killer. I'm sorry. No, I agree, I agree, I agree. It's a, it's a miss. So, as you know, the autopsy report is uh, inconclusive about the cause of death. Stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. 
Est-ce que vous pouvez nous dire à quoi il fait référence quand il parle du pillage de son œuvre That's not true. Vous aviez déjà frappé votre mari Non. Non, jamais. C'est bien ce qui s'est passé. Our next movie is Anatomy of a Fall, which won the Palm d'Or at Cannes this year. And uh, Stephen saw it at Cannes. I believe you saw it at Cannes, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty surprising. Believe it or not, I saw it at the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> it's the Cannes of uh, Austin. I don't go anywhere. I go to the Alamo Draft House and I go to the poker room. And sometimes I go to the grocery store. That's pretty much my life. It's not bad. It's not a bad That's life. That's a full life. It's not a bad life, but it's not going to Cannes. Anyway, Anatomy of a Fall won the Palm d'Or at Cannes, and now it's in semi-wide release wherever um, NPR uh, listening uh, moviegoers see films. And, you know, I, it's an interesting uh, contrast, I, I feel like, to recent Palm d'Or winners like Triangle of Sadness and Parasite and Titan, which were like, big, broad, you know, social satires uh, with outrageous twists and, you know, a lot of lot of um, just gore and vomit and set pieces. Whereas Anatomy of a Fall is kind of like a like a chamber music piece, really, like a much quieter film. Right. Yeah, for sure. It is. It's it's more um, I don't want to say bourgeois, yeah. but it is about the bourgeoisie. I mean, right. It's about an affluent couple. Uh, you know, one is a, a struggling, frustrated Uh, novelist and the other is a very successful novelist, this woman, Sandra Huller. And that's the kind of the crux of the tension between the, the two. One of, uh, you know, her husband ends up dead in the snow in a very dramatic way with a splash of red in the white snow. Uh, and that's the crux of the film is did she, didn't she, you know, and there's a big courtroom drama. Basically, it becomes you know, about halfway through. It's a long film. It's a lot of courtroom. I, I, it, it's pretty long. I will say, like, I don't, I don't feel like they are bourgeois in that they're not, you know, they're like, you know, intelligentsia, but like, I don't, they don't have a lot of money. Like they're living in this, you know, small uh, country house, chalet in this small uh, town in the French Alps that the husband grew up in. And it's like been in his family for a long time. So, you know, they're, I mean, that kind of sounds bougie. Don't you think that sounds a little bougie? Well, it, it sounds a little bougie, but it's, they're not rich. <laughs> I mean, the furniture is ratty. They eat, they seem to eat a right. lot of potatoes. You know, it's, they're, they don't drive fancy cars. They're not, they're not, fa these are not fancy people, but she is a successful novelist. So I guess I, I sort of like, um, what did I call this? It was like gone girl, uh, for people, for people who, uh, you know, have an NPR tote bag, right? Because. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it's, it is accessible on a sort of upper middle class, you know, fairly affluent, but not super wealthy level. Right. It's not parasite where you have super poor and super rich. These are very relatable people, although, you know, with an artistic bent, but you could see their lifestyle and say, oh, I I could have that lifestyle myself or I know people who do. And, and in fact, do. And in fact, do. I was, I'm like, my furniture is that shitty. As well. <laughs> and, and, and I too have written unsuccessful novels. Uh, so I could relate to some extent, you know, but the whole thing is like, it's basically like a murder mystery. You know, the, the whole question is, and this isn't giving anything away, is did uh, the female novelist uh, kill her husband or did he kill himself? And the, the whole movie is a, uh, it's just sort of a deconstruction of that idea. And, um, you know, what, what I, what I like, there's some things I liked about it. I mean, it was, it was you know, a little, uh, sleepy in some ways, but also like, it was kind of cool to see the French justice system, uh, in action, you know, uh, yeah. the, all the, all the goofy robes and, and wig. I don't think they were wearing <laughs> wigs, but they were wearing goofy robes. Stranger. I loved, I loved how the jury was sitting up on the dais next to the judge. 
you know? Yeah. Like a star yeah. chamber. That was crazy. Also, like, you know, this is like, I would say like a, in the context, in the world of the film, like a fairly high profile um, murder. And yet uh, there was no press in the courtroom. There was just some press outside the courtroom. And the, it wasn't, you know, an American movie, the courtroom would have been full of gawkers and crazy people and shouters. And, and, it, and it wasn't like that. It wasn't at all. And I, I, you know, what I loved about the film was that it's very much a, it's a movie about communication, miscommunication, um, the unknowable. You know, how do you really know somebody? And what they're capable of. Well, it's also a very it's also a very emotional family film. You know, the to me the uh, there were two there were a lot of good all the performances were good in the film. Um, I, I like I like the guy who played the lawyer. I mean, he, I'm like, boy, that, that's a very handsome lawyer with a nice head of hair. He's so French. <laughs> um, but uh, but really, but the set the emotional centerpiece of the film to me was the the boy, the son, who who is who is. Kind of blind, right? Partially blind? Kind of blind and has a weird um, Danny Bonaducci uh, from the Partridge family like haircut. And, uh, and, but, but he's, he's a, it's a wonderful performance. And, you know, he's like, you know, his, he, he finds his dead father's body and he has to hear all these horrible things about his parents' marriage. And, and yet, like, he has like such a, he's like has a really strong character and just really wants to find out the truth and is trying to like, understand like he understand things and he's not breaking down i would just thought it was a it was a really wonderful performance and also the dog re- really good dog <laughs> wonderful dog i think he won the prize uh, at the top prize in the palm dog which is a sidebar um ceremony that happens the dog not the not the boy in in the Cannes film festival they they hand out the, the palm door and then every year there's a palm dog which is awarded to the film with the best dog performance and i think this also won that oh yeah well w- w- well deserved but i thought the boy was wonderful and you know i like you know the the ambiguity of did she or didn't she do it i mean people will debate it to some extent there is actually a um the, the promotional website for the for the site for the movie, which which they 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 flash it at the beginning of the movie, it's didshedoit.com, and you can go vote about whether or not. There you go. And I, the last time I checked, it was sixty five percent. She didn't do it. That that's what I personally voted. That ooh, she it's still a little you know, it's still a little vague though. Maybe she did do it. Well, I mean, this is what I was getting at too when I said that you don't, you never, you know, it's about the unknowable. It's about how you may never really know what somebody's capable of. And also that the truth is very elusive, but also that communication is very difficult. It's hard to see, right? There's the metaphor with the partially blind kid. But then the fact, I I love this. We haven't talked about this yet. She is German. She marries the Swiss guy who speaks French. And the only way that they communicate is in English. And she has to defend herself in English. And that is difficult at times where she says, I don't quite know what the word is, but, you know, she's doing her best to communicate in a language that's not her own. She's, this is not her own country even, you know, she's moved there to be with him. Um, So I, I, there are wonderful shades of that kind of tension uh, in terms of different customs, different languages, different ways of, you know, interacting and connecting, which, and lack thereof, you know, I thought it was very powerful. Yeah. Uh, very uh, good, emotional, very strong film, very different again than other things that we've seen coming uh, out of the top prize of, of Cannes in recent years. I don't, I don't know if that signals it's a sea change in international taste or that this just maybe was the best movie this year. I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, it's definitely worth the watch. Anatomy of a Fall is uh, playing possibly where you live now. And if not, it, it will be on some, some kind of streaming service uh, relatively soon. I love you so much. 
I wish we could tell the whole world. But we're breaking company policy. He can't keep up. He's not you. Just tell me what's going on here. He's promoting me. Congratulations. You crossed the line. I'll fix it. You know it's just a game. You played very well. Boom. You were crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> so we're going to close out this quartet of films with one that's uh, been on Netflix for a few weeks now. Uh, Steven wrote about it for the site and I watched it. I watched it on, did not watch it at the Alamo Draft House. I watched it uh, at home on my couch. It's called Fair Play. And it is a kind of a old fashioned erotic legal thriller, I guess, with a, with a kind of a me too twist. Well, legal or is it legal or, or well, it's more financial, right? No, it's financial. It's, yeah, it's Wall Street. It's Wall Street. It's Wall like Street. it's like yeah. it's kind of like um, it's kind of like fatal attraction meets boiler room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually is. Yeah, that's right. Boiler room. It's a funny boiler movie. room is, you know, great, great, gritty. It's, this isn't like Wall Street or the Wolf of Wall Street, which were big budget films. This is, a, you know, kind of a, a grittier indie film directed. I believe the director's name is Chloe Domont, Um, and it stars Alden Ehrenreich, uh, the former Han Solo and uh, Phoebe uh, Divinor, who is on Bridgerton, which is a show I don't watch, but was informed by certain members of my household who do watch it, that she was uh, a, a major character on the first season of Bridgerton. And they play a uh, couple of uh, hedge fund analysts who are secretly shacking up and are secretly engaged and are, and have all kinds of like sweaty sex in a terrible apartment in Chinatown when they're not at work. <laughs> they're at work like 18 hours a day. And then they spend the rest of their time having, having, having sweaty, exhausted sex uh, in this terrible apartment. Um, and then trouble ensues when uh, the female member of the couple who is clearly the more intelligent one gets a, he scores a, a big, good deal and gets a big promotion and uh, envy ensues. Let us say. envy. Yes. Envy ensues. And there will be blood. And I mean, you know, it's like, it starts with menstrual blood and then it ends kind of with real blood, you know? So it's there, there yeah. it, it's well, menstrual blood is real blood. Steve. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, one that naturally occurs and is fleshed out of the body. The other that is unnaturally, uh, you know, cut, from the body, I guess. I yes, know, yes. I stumbled in that metaphor. I mean, I, I felt like, um, well, you know, it's a it's a wicked, wicked little thriller. You know, I thought that both um, the uh, main actors were excellent. Uh, Phoebe Divinor, I thought, was really good uh, playing uh, a role that required a lot of restraint on her part. Um, and then uh, Alden Ehrenreich kind of had the, yeah, bit of, I'd say the flashier part of the um, the incompetent idiot who gradually goes insane because he can't deal with his uh, fiance's <laughs> success, right? Yes. It's understandable why he does what he does and, and, and how it ends up, uh, you know, playing out. But, it's, you know, he's not, a, he's not a sympathetic character. He's not. I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of slow burn shame, right? That's what he's really feeling. It's, it's, it's envy, but it's also shame. Like he knows he's inadequate and he has to take those, you know, that, that online course to like boost his confidence. And she even calls him out like, what the fuck are you doing with this? You don't need this. Yeah, this is, this is bullshit, right? Yeah. yeah. But the thing is like, I mean, I think that does speak to a, a certain um, vibe in the culture where, uh, you know, women have a lot more agency and, and power uh, these days. And, uh, you know, and, and sort of mediocre white man doesn't cut it anymore. Right. I, I personally would be thrilled, thrilled if my wife were to 
uh, get a high powered job where if she made one deal, it would get a $450,000 check. <laughs> that, that would, that would really free up my week. <laughs> I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be envious at all. I'd be like, what errand do you want me to run dear? I'm happy to, I, I'm happy to, to um, go, go pick, pick something up at, at the store. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I personally don't, wouldn't feel that way. Like I would be happy for my partner to achieve that level. Of financial success. But I guess the fact is that they basically have the same job. And then, you know, she um, eclipses him. You know, there's this wonderful scene sort of sort of two thirds of the way through the movie where he literally gets on his knees and begs the head of the firm. Yeah. Oh. Who's Eddie Marson? He's fantastic. How great is that guy? That's perfect casting. Yes. British actor playing a gravelly American voice guy. Yeah, he's terrific. And he's like, I would say like, those are the only three real characters in the film. There are other Pretty actors floating about, but you know, the, the three of them kind of, kind of handle it. And I, I thought this was, I, I'm not familiar with Chloe Domont's um, other movies, but you know, I thought this was a, you know, terrific uh, film. I, you know, I, I think, I think this might be her debut. Yeah, it is her debut. Uh, she's, she comes from, I think television. So she's, she's definitely experienced and she knows, how to run a tight ship and make a, a low budget movie look not too shabby. I mean, it's, it's, it is small. It's not Wolf of Wall Street. There aren't like CGI effects and things like that, but it still looks pretty impressive, you know, pretty glossy. Yeah. And it reminded me uh, in a sort of tone and vibe of, of like nineties erotic thrillers, like let's say the last seduction or yeah. the bedroom window, you know, mo- movies like that. I mean that, uh, you know, that were not high budget and we're definitely, we're about a time and a place and about um, distorted male female power dynamics. So just the script has flipped a little bit here, where the basically the, the woman is in charge, and it felt very like it felt accurate and true to life, and and sort of the ending to me felt very earned. And I I really like it. I think it's a uh, you know it's I initially called it funny when I before I I saw it, but it's not funny. It's not funny. It's not a comedy. But it's it's fun. It's very fun. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. So uh, Fair Play is on Netflix now, and Stephen and I both recommend it. And that uh, and that concludes our uh, Neil and Stephen at the Movies. I am Neil Pollock from the Chicago Sun-Times. <laughs> where, where am I from, the Examiner? What paper? No, you're from, you're from the Chicago Tribune. No, oh, we're both Tribune, from Book and Film Globe. Yeah, we're both from oh, that's Book right. and Film Globe. That's Thank right. you, Stephen Garrett. This is a this is a proof. This is a test that, that we could talk about movies for half an hour in it. You know, it's not boring. Maybe it's boring to, to all of you, but I don't think it is. It's definitely not boring to us. We'll we'll do it. We'll do it again sometime, Stephen. Anytime. All right. Thank you, Stephen Garrett, for indulging me in my Siskel and Ebert cosplay ideas and uh, for reviewing these excellent films. Well, I wouldn't say The Killer was excellent, but it was an interesting film to talk about. We also talked about Priscilla, Anatomy of a Fall, and Fair Play. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I will be back next week with a variety of guests. Back to the old format. Stephen may be one of them. You never know when he's going to stop by, but we'll be talking about a bunch of different things. Uh, involving books and film and streaming TV. I hope you join me then. I will talk to you soon. Original Production.